the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What does impeachment have to do with thought crime? The Conservative Party in the UK wins big. Canadian transgender activist Jessica Yaniv personifies the left. And we discuss comedian Mike Birbiglia's 180 story on parenthood. Welcome to the 180 cast. Hello, welcome back to the 180 cast. I am your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast dedicated to exploring how people change their minds. And this is a breakdown session where I talk about the news, the big ideas behind them, and how they might impact you. And we talk about the high points of the 180 cast interviews, which happen every other week, are very informative, fascinating, and in-depth, and something that you should definitely tune into. We are also going to talk culture. We're going to talk comedy, and it'll be great. We have a lot to cover today because it has been a very busy news week. But before we get started, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter and also subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher. My personal favorite is Google Play. It's very clean interface, very easy to keep track of everything. But that's just my personal preference. If you like Podbean or whatever, go for it. You do you. And without further ado, let's get into the top stories. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about! It will top the list. Yes, it certainly does top the list, as it has topped the list for, what, like a couple months now? We do have to talk about impeachment, because the articles of impeachment are finally here! Yes! Or maybe not. No! appropriated security to a beleaguered and besieged ally facing armed aggression from Russia, America's implacable foe. This is not about Ukraine. Facts are on the president's side. Zelensky said he wasn't pressured. Ukrainians didn't even know aid was held at the time of the call. And most importantly, they did nothing to get the aid released. This is about one basic fact. The Democrats have never accepted the will of the American people. President Trump's attempt to subvert our election was an attack on America. The president got caught when the whistleblower expressed, exposed the president's scheme. Then the president sought to cover up the scheme. He stonewalled Congress as we pursued our investigation. He instructed his staff, cabinet, and other federal officials to do the same. The chairman of this committee and the majority have seen fit to abuse this committee's rules and ignore the rights of the minority with impunity. The majority should keep in mind that they will one day be in the minority and they are setting a precedent in which they will likely one day be the victim themselves. Yeah, that's a compilation of comments within the markup hearings in the House Judiciary Committee. Things are getting spicy. This is going to be terrible. But you know what? God bless Nancy Pelosi for ramming this stuff through. She knew that this was a bad idea from the very beginning, and now it seems like she's just trying to get it over with. But we have something to talk about regarding these articles of impeachment, and I will tell you what. Okay, so 
This whole impeachment thing has been about one thing, essentially, in terms of the substance of the the beef that is supposed to be what we consider impeachable. And that is, what was Donald Trump thinking at the time of the phone call with President Zelensky? And what was he thinking when he was talking with Ambassador Sondland about wanting Zelensky to get in front of a mic and say that we're, you know, you need to start um, saying that he needs to announce investigations into Burisma and Hunter Biden? And was he really interested in the national interests and the integrity of our elections when he's, you know, so concerned with what Hunter Biden is doing with this company Burisma and whether he's been dragged around on Joe Biden's coattails for this whole time and what's up with that and and this this crowd strike business about the the server that is supposed to be hidden somewhere in Ukraine what was his state of mind was this for his personal benefit or was he really interested in cleaning out corruption in Ukraine because he didn't want to give foreign aid to a country that was corrupt. That is the substance of what we're dealing with here. There is no evidence strong enough to convict Donald Trump in the Senate for abuse of power outside of this contention that is not external evidence that Trump was thinking a certain way. Many people have pointed out that impeachment is bad for the country. Of course, it's bad for the country. And many people, including myself, have pointed out that this type of impeachment with the bar lowered down so close to the ground means that basically every future president is going to be at risk of being impeached. And every election is going to be thought of as, okay, well, he won, but he shouldn't have won because he's such a bad guy and... We just have to wait for a scandal to crop up and then we can impeach him and remove him because, you know, he's just so terrible that he can't be our duly elected president. And we can't we can't leave him in there for four years and wait for another election. That would be terrible. That is the precedent that we're setting up. But there's also another precedent that we are setting up here. And that is regarding like what sort of definition are we going to go off of in terms of convicting elected officials or impeaching elected officials because the articles of impeachment the first impeachment is it the first article of impeachment is about abuse of power okay so let me just let me just read it to you and i'll just read the language to you and then we'll talk about the ramifications this is the first article this was released on the 10th Using the powers of his high office, President Trump solicited the interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, in the 2020 United States. He did so through a scheme or course of conduct that included soliciting the government of Ukraine to publicly announce investigations that would benefit his reelection, harm the election prospects of a potential opponent, and influence the 2020 United States presidential election to his advantage. President Trump also sought to pressure the government of Ukraine to take these steps by conditioning official United States government acts of significant value to Ukraine on its public announcement of the investigations president trump engaged in this scheme or course of conduct for corrupt purposes in pursuit of personal political benefit and it it goes on there's there's other phrases similar to this that talk about trump's intent what his motivations are with the same corrupt motives 
corruptly urging and soliciting Ukraine to undertake investigations for his personal political benefit. Um, In all this, President Trump abused the powers of the presidency by ignoring and injuring national security or other vital national interests to obtain an improper personal benefit, right? Improper personal benefit. And um, then there's, at the end, there's this contention that Trump will remain a threat to national security and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office. Article 2 is about obstruction of Congress, and it's it's really just tacked on. And it, basically, the contention is because the, the White House... Um, said, we are not going to honor these subpoenas. We're going to take you to court over it because we don't think we have to turn over the documents because we think they're covered by executive privilege. That is the contention. And that's just a normal process that happens all the time where somebody serves you with a subpoena and you're like, no, I don't want to do it. I don't think I have to. And you go to court and then the court settles it as a dispute. So the article number two is pretty ridiculous on its face. But I want to focus on article number one. It is blatantly obvious that the Democrats have already decided what Donald Trump was thinking. And they simply inserted that language into the article of impeachment to make it seem like the actions that Donald Trump took were absolutely 100% impeachable, absolutely 100% abuses of power. Now, I have said before that I do not think that call was perfect. I think it's ridiculous that he's been trying to investigate this debunked conspiracy theory about CrowdStrike and the DNC server. It, it's nasty and, and it's gross. It's, it's not impeachable, though. It shouldn't be impeachable. I mean, technically, you can impeach somebody for anything, but this should not be impeachable. Here's the issue. The standard of misconduct has been lowered, meaning that you can be booted for doing things that other people in the same circumstances have done and nobody blinked an eye. The standard of misconduct has been lowered because it's all about intent. If you can just pin somebody and say, no, 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 actually, you know, I can read your mind. I know exactly what you were thinking when you took that phone call, when you met with that person, when you took that donation. I know exactly what you were thinking. Well, then you can just boot anybody out. Because it's, a, it's about the thought crime, right? It's not about any harm that was actually done. It's not about any external evidence of a crime. It's about what were you thinking at the time. This is so dangerous. And it's especially dangerous because at the same time that we have lowered our standard for what kind of thing we're going to consider a crime, we've also lowered our standard for what sort of person we are going to put in the highest offices of the country. We've lowered our standard for character. That's undeniable. Donald Trump was the most impeachable, regardless of, uh, I'm just speaking strategically, politically here. Donald Trump was the most impeachable out of all of the 2016 candidates for the Republican nomination. That's just absolutely true because it seems like he spent most of his life sort of walking a fine line on what is legal and what is not. I mean, Trump University, come on, with paying off porn stars and all of this. He was impeachable. And now we're seeing that come to fruition. And I'm not saying it's just, I'm not saying it's right, because I don't think it's right. I think he's our duly elected president and he has not done anything worthy 
of actually being removed from office. But yeah, we've lowered the standard for what we are going to consider to be impeachable while we've lowered the standard of character. Basically, we've set ourselves up for a situation in which everybody is going to be at risk of impeachment. I mean, if we keep putting the same types of people in office, everybody's going to be at risk of impeachment. Because all you have to do is believe hard enough and wave your hands around, gesticulate wildly, and pound your desk really hard and convince the public that he's just a bad guy. We just got to get rid of him, right? And we know from the beginning that the Democrats wanted to impeach Trump from day one. We have methods of accountability for actions that don't rise to the level of criminality. It's called an election. And now we've opened every president, every member of Congress, up to be potentially removed based on articles as weak as the one I just read from. And we've decided it's totally cool to put people who would have been a high risk for such charges into the highest offices of the nation. So whether Dems believe they can read the mind of the president or pretend they can, this is a very dangerous, dangerous precedent. And we are, we are teetering on the brink of thought crimes here. Not just thought crimes for Lulo Joe Schmo, who accidentally called somebody an illegal immigrant in New York City, because apparently that is, um, that's, that's illegal to call somebody an illegal immigrant because presumably it is uh, meant out of, out of bigotry and hatred to call somebody by their legal status. It's not just for, for you and me. It's for people that millions of us, hundreds of millions of people voted for and said, yes, I want that guy to lead the country. This is a very dangerous power for government, for government officials to have, especially federal government really dangerous. Breaking news coming out of the UK, at least when I'm recording this, which is Thursday night. Boris Johnson's Conservative Party in the UK is projected to pick up 50 parliament seats, crushing, crushing Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, which is projected to lose 71. And if exit polls are correct, which they probably are, this is the best conservative sweep in Britain since Margaret Thatcher's win in 1987. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, Boris Johnson has already been prime minister, and the way it works in the UK is prime ministers are not elected directly by the people. They are appointed by the majority in parliament, so it's usually the leader of whoever is the majority party. And right now that's Boris Johnson. If the Labour Party had won and put together a, co a coalition, then the Prime Minister probably would have been Jeremy Corbyn. And that would have been very bad. I will explain. So, because the Conservative Party won, it means that Jeremy Corbyn, who has let anti-Semitism run roughshod through his party, and who holds no particular favor to the United States, by the way, so this is an important election for us, he's not going to be in charge. Also... Israel's government is breathing a sigh of relief because, um, according to a recent poll, about 67% of Jeremy Corbyn's supporters hold at least one anti-Semitic view. That's from the Jerusalem Post. So, good news for Israel as well, and it also means that the United Kingdom can finally exit the European Union, also known as Brexit, and set their own rules for trade. 
Three whole years after the people of the UK voted on it, they finally have a comfortable majority to push through their Brexit deal and finally get it done. And it means that the the pound is gaining a bit of strength against the dollar and surging, apparently, compared to the euro. Because, hey, investors, business people favor stability and less government intervention. And they doubtless would have had less stability and more government intervention had the Labour Party succeeded. So just to keep you updated on that, I hope that is helpful. Now you can sound smart to all of your friends. And with that, we should definitely, definitely move on to interview highlights. Okay, let's talk about abortion. Impeachment, abortion, I'm starting with all the cheery topics. So this week we are talking about episode 38 with T. Russell Hunter, who is a lobbyist with Free the States and an abolitionist and author slash founder of the website Abolish Human Abortion, which is something that uh, I have been told by abolitionists is essentially what kick-started modern abortion abolitionism. And a lot of people use the symbol, the AHA symbol, in their social media campaigns and whatnot to identify themselves with the abolitionist movement. Basically, his story is that he went from being a lukewarm Baptist who was pro-life, has heard all of the, the speakers, has seen all of the literature, and generally just accepts the mainstream pro-life perspective, didn't think too much about it. And then he turned into a fire-breathing abolitionist. Not actual fire-breathing, because I felt like he was very um, measured in, in the conversation that we had, which was very interesting. And which also builds off and clarifies a couple other episodes that we've done on abolitionism. Episode 22 and episode 24 with Pastor John Speed, which you should definitely check out as well. Particularly, we talk about the difference between the incrementalist approach and the abolitionist approach, just point blank a description of each one and what their similarities and differences are. Now, as I titled episode 38, T. Russell Hunter was convinced both by reading history, uh, the history of slavery, and also digging into theology and apologetics. And those two things sort of converged at once in his life while he also said God was working in his life on some other things that needed straightening out. And that is essentially what turned him into an abolitionist. He told this one particular story. I asked him, you know, do you have any specific things that you remember reading that really caught your attention and were were really gripping and convincing to you? And he told me this. There's kind of a famous sort of event that happens where William Lloyd Garrison in America is is being asked to speak on behalf of colonization, which was sort of like the focus only on helping them get out of the country view, sort of tantamount to sort of uh, a lot of the views today, sort of like, let's let's encourage plantation owners to freely manumit their slaves and let's help them get jobs until there are none, sort of, and then there were none sort of perspective. And he's going to speak on July 4th about this American colonization view. And uh, 
I get, you can tell from his writing and his letters that he's having problem problems with it, but he sees an auction block and he's kind of like, yeah, my promotion of this sort of long, gradual abolition of slavery does not help that mother who's being separated from her child right now. And reading that stuff in history, I'm kind of like, just like our gradual pro-lifey stuff doesn't help anyone now. You know, it's like, it almost kind of like abandons the people now. So I think reading things like that, to me, it was kind of saying, it's kind of looking at figures and saying, who would I have been in this narrative? Would I have been the person that was willing to, to let these these slaves be mistreated? Or would I have been the person who was like sort of standing up and saying, no, this is a sin unto God and we need to repent of it immediately? I found this so interesting because abortion is tricky in that the people that both abolitionists and pro-lifers seek to defend are essentially invisible. They're very tiny. They cannot speak for themselves. They don't have a fully developed face or facial expressions, generally speaking, like you and I do. They are nameless and faceless. And to many people who don't care and who believe abortion is okay, just a clump of cells. It is hard to motivate somebody to be against abortion if the people that you're defending don't have a face. It's like with this whole issue at the border and and children being separated from their parents at the border, which is absolutely terrible, but we won't get into that now. Um, There are faces there, right? You know, the the children in the the quote-unquote cages, like those pictures that have been going around since like 2014, those tug at your heart, right? The preborn usually don't have that. You can show somebody an ultrasound, but 93% of abortions are happening in the first trimester. And that's really just an outline of a sort of peanut-shaped baby that you see in the sonogram that doesn't have a lot of definition to it and it certainly doesn't have any facial expressions. That's generally what you're talk- who you're talking about protecting. And I think it's so fascinating to draw the analogy with slavery because there were faces there. There were bodies there. There were auction blocks and and people actually on them, like real human beings being auctioned off as chattel. To draw an analogy there and to think about it and say, oh, that's my neighbor. And now in 2019, this person here, or I guess for him in 2011, this this person here, who is my neighbor? Well, that's the preborn. To love their neighbors as themselves. And so I'm sitting there think I'm looking at all this stuff intellectually, also looking at myself and going, what am I doing? And I'm not really loving my neighbor as I love myself. I'm like, who is my neighbor? My neighbor isn't an enslaved neighbor. My neighbor is the preborn. And so God kind of broke me about my own apathy at the same time that I happen to be doing this kind of deep historical stuff. So there's this very special connection that abolitionists see between slavery and abortion and slavery having that that aspect to it where you can see the suffering so much more tangibly than you can with abortion. And there's also this issue of what God is doing in the heart. Like Russell said that God broke him. And really, I think 
it gets to the heart of what the difference is between between pro-lifers and abolitionists. It's not just about strategy, right? The strategy comes from something deeper. The strategy comes from what your theology is, essentially. And that's my contention. And I think Russell would agree with me. Essentially, what do you believe the human heart is like? Are, are humans essentially good, but easily led astray and easily deceived? Or are humans crooked and depraved because our natures are sinful? And what does that mean for the abortion debate? Well, for pro-lifers, they generally believe abortion is a, an issue of women being uh, convinced almost uh, against their natural instincts to do something like this, either because people are pressuring them or because there's a lack of resources or because the people at the abortion mill are, are deceiving them. And it's these outside external factors that lead a woman to commit abortion. And so, in essence, she isn't really culpable for those actions. But abolitionism is different. They see it differently. Well, all the pro-life, I guess, myths, which I would say they're myths now, they didn't ever take into consideration seriously the idea that people are sinners and people do love themselves more than they love God and that men and women are both alike sinners before God and will do whatever they can to stay on the throne. And so, and, and, and usually our sin rolls down on our children. I was talking to my friend, James Silberman, who's very involved in the abolitionist movement. And I said, how many of these people do you, do you think are reformed? How many of these people do you think uh, generally hold to a, a Calvinist perspective? I mean, there's more to being reformed than Calvinism, but how many of these people believe in, in total depravity? And he goes, oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, this is how I remember the conversation. He's like, that's an interesting question. I think probably I would say like about two thirds. And I was like, yep, makes sense because theology determines your worldview and your worldview determines what kind of strategies you're going to, to take in order to change public policy. But even broader than that, it's not just about total depravity. There's a difference even in whether or not the movement to end abortion is Christian or whether it's secular and whether it should be secular and can succeed as a secular movement or whether it is something that is driven by the body of Christ and God is working through these people, even though they have small numbers, to bring about this change toward justice. Abolitionism is gospel-centered. And so when we're talking about persuasion, you have to take that in con into consideration. We're, we're invoking a higher law. So it's a very specific theologically girded um, view. Like you don't have right. really a lot of secular abolitionists. You could have a secular immediatist or anti-incrementalist, but an abolitionist is generally going to say, yes, abortion sin, it's murder. The answer to abortion is the gospel. People can repent. People can believe in Christ and be saved, but in regard to our laws, okay. they, it all Because I basically asked Russell, I was like, well, can you be an abolitionist 
and not be a born again believer. And he essentially told me, no, you can sort of inherit the abolitionist perspective from other people if it becomes more popular. But fundamentally, what you believe about abortion is going to derive from your worldview and your worldview derives from your theology. It reminds me of something that John Speed said in one of the episodes I did with him, because I did two, I think episode 22 and episode 24, where he said, this is basically a matter of faith. Do you believe that you have to be big and strong and have large numbers to defeat abortion and that you're not strong enough to get through strong measures to actually end abortion versus just try to regulate it? Or do you believe that God is the God who helped David slay a giant with a stone? And I think that that's such a powerful image and story to remember is the God of the Bible, the one true and living God can do anything. And he doesn't need your help. He doesn't need millions of people to march in the March for Life. He doesn't need you to print t-shirts saying you're the pro-life generation. But your faithfulness and your commitment to justice, God uses that, even in small numbers. So I really encourage you to to listen to that episode. I know that this is a very touchy, contentious subject. I know that pro-lifers and abolitionists have clashed online in in unchristlike ways um, in in many instances, and there has been a, a lot of bitterness on both sides, and that needs to stop. Everybody needs to be courteous and respectful and uh, show empathy and compassion to other people, even when you disagree so vehemently on something so important. But I do hope that you can set that aside and listen to that episode with open ears and an open heart and see what you come away with. And with that, it is time to move on to the Woke of the Week. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Mine too. Y'all about to get woke. Jessica Yaniv is the worst. Jessica Yaniv, if you do not know who this person is, is a transgender Canadian and semi-professional complainer who is a biological male. And just to be clear, all males are biological males. All biological males are males. Um, This biological male tweeted Monday, last Monday, that he was shocked, shocked to be turned away from a gynecologist. I wrote on this last week. Um, so a gynecologist office, this is what he tweeted. So a gynecologist office that I got referred to literally told me today that we don't serve transgender patients. And me, being me, I'm shocked and confused and hurt. Are they allowed to do that legally? Isn't that against the college practices? And if you do not uh, know the details of who Yaniv is and what Yaniv has done... Uh, Jessica, formerly known as Jonathan Yaniv, brought a complaint to the Human Rights Tribunal regarding several, I think it was 16 estheticians who turned him down because they did not wax biological males. And he desired to be waxed, and they said, no, we're, we're, no, we're not going to wax your genitals. That's that's not something that we do here. That's not something that we're comfortable with. And Yaniv thought that that was absolutely ridiculous and bigoted and that they needed to be punished. Uh, his perspective on this, that um, he was vindictive and 
bigoted and xenophobic against most of these women who were, well, actually all of them were minorities was a part of why the human rights tribunal ruled in favor of the aestheticians. Thank goodness. So that's the background on Jessica Yaniv. And let me further explain this interesting situation about the, uh, the gynecologist's office. He tweeted and he said that the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia confirmed to Yaniv that the refusal he received is a discrimination under the BC Human Rights Code and against their code of ethics. So he went ahead and, and, and filed a complaint. Even, uh, even Blair White, who, yes, I have reached out to and would love to talk to on the program, but I have not heard back from yet, center-right transgender YouTuber Blair White tweeted in a reply on Yaniv's thread, you don't go to a gynecologist if you don't have a vagina. You don't go to a repair shop if you don't have a car. Stop trying to bully people into touching your privates, which uh, is a great way to sum it up. Now, here's the deal. A lot of people brush off Jessica Yaniv as this crazy fringe person who's doing things that nobody would ever think of doing. But when you look at the policies that the far left is pushing with regard to gender ideology, we are not that far off from what Jessica Yaniv has been up to because all the ideology matches up. It's all consistent with the idea that biological sex does not matter. That distinction does not matter. And in, if you assert that distinction, even in a medical sense, you are effectively discriminating against somebody and not giving them their equal rights. That's just, I mean, you can, you can see that across the board. That's what the LGBT community has been saying. Well, at least, at least the T part of the LGBT. Now, this leaves us with an interesting discussion because trans rights are essentially coercive rights. And what I mean by that is trans rights are not the same as same-sex marriage. So a lot of people would like to say that they're similar, like, oh, you know, um, gays and lesbians now have the right to get married. It's time for transgender people to have their equality too. And isn't this just a matter of leaving people alone and having the freedom to just sort of be yourself and express yourself? Isn't it that kind of issue? A quote-unquote right, like the one Yaniv has asserted, that Estheticians should be required to wax his male genitals or that gynecologists should be required to examine him in their office room. That's nothing more and nothing less than the right to violate someone else's right. So in this case, it's the right not to be conscripted into service against their will. And honest advocates for gender equality admit that their rights begin where yours end. Consider, for instance, what the Ontario Human Rights Commission says about misgendering, which is considered a form of disc discrimination in Ontario. Quote, our lawmakers and courts recognize the right to freedom of expression, and at the same time that no right is absolute, expression may be limited where, for example, it is hate speech under criminal law. Trans rights are fundamentally coercive. Those rights begin where yours end, because the right is the right to make you do something for them. The right does not exist outside of you doing that thing for them. So you have a right to have somebody wax you in the nether regions 
that person does that for you. If that person doesn't do that for you, then your right doesn't exist, right? It's, this is, you're being conscripted into service in order to fulfill somebody else's right. And this is fundamentally tyrannical. I mean, Jessica Yaniv is a little tyrant, but Jessica Yaniv personifies the far left, which is increasingly moving, like uh, absorbing more and more of the left. So you could even say maybe it's the center left. In any case, which do you think is more despotic? Me politely declining to create a custom cake for you or you demanding that I do it? My business setting the rules for my own bathrooms or you demanding that I let males into female spaces? Me politely declining to use preferred pronouns or you demanding I do so under penalty of losing my job, getting fined, or being thrown in jail? My withdrawal from medical work associated with killing children, for instance, or you forcing me to participate in an act that's already fundamentally the worst form of oppression? So it goes beyond trans rights. Most of the rights that the far left is advocating for are coercive rights. They're either, they're, it's either the right to take something out of your pocket because it's theft, for instance, to pay for um, Medicare for all, something like that, or it's the right to force you as a private citizen to do something for them. The answer should be, be obvious to these questions about what is despotic and what is not but we have fallen so far out of reality that people are actually debating the answers to these questions. Jessica Yaniv personifies the left in this way. It is about forcing other people to do what you want. And your rights don't exist unless they do what you want. And in fact, unless they do what you want, they are the ones who are oppressing you. Those are the arguments that are being made. So citizens of liberal democracy should take note. Jessica Jonathan Yaniv is the future personified if we continue down this path. The further a society moves from the truth, the closer it moves to tyranny. And with that, I wish I could move on to the flip phone, but sadly, there are no messages on the flip phone this week. And that breaks my heart. So please, if you have thoughts on the podcast, you can text them or leave a voicemail at 323-999-1802. That's 323-999-1802. And if you forget that number, you do not have to come back to this episode or any of the episodes. You can go to the 180Cast Twitter page, and that number is right there at the top in the bio. It's going to be legend. Wait for it. Skip the end. Dairy. It is time for Uncorking the Culture, and today I want to talk to you about a Netflix special that I watched a couple days ago with my husband. It is from Mike Birbiglia. It is called The New One, and it is rated mature, which did surprise me because the two previous specials that I've seen from Mike Birbiglia have been actually quite clean, Um, but this was a very, very... This is a special special, okay? And I have seen a lot of Netflix comedy specials, like a lot. And this is the one that I will remember, I think, years from now. Mike Birbiglia is a very unique comedian. And I think he is head and shoulders above so many other comedians that I also find extremely funny. 
And the reason for that is he is down to his core, a storyteller. This dude knows how to tell a story. And so when we started watching this, we were like, yes, we're going to hear a story from Mike Birbiglia. We're going to hear all these little stories and it's going to be put into this big story and it's going to be cohesive and it's going to come full circle. And that's so much fun. Like it, there's, there's just something very, very satisfying about that. But when we turned into this special, uh, I, at least speaking for myself, I was not prepared for the roller coaster of emotions and the profundity of some of the things that he talked about. Now, I didn't read the description before I clicked on this. I was like, yes, Mike Birbiglia, let's watch it play. So I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And this whole story that he tells is about his journey toward parenthood. But he spends like two thirds of the episode talking about how he never wanted to have kids, how terrible kids are, and all of these experiences that he had with children and families of children that are absolutely terrible. So it starts off with him talking about his his couch and all of these different important things that happen on the couch. Here's what he says he used to believe what love is. So we'll lie on the couch and she'll order me a chicken kebab platter and scratch my back and we'll snuggle with our cat Mazzy and watch a documentary about murder. (laughs) And that's what love is. And it all takes place on the couch. He says, that's what love is. And I can sympathize with that. I mean, before Cody and I had kids, our life was a lot like that. Here's what he had to say about children. And this is the tone he took for a significant portion of the special, which led me to believe, what am I getting myself into? Is he going to bash families and bash uh, uh, babies for this entire special? Um, Just take a listen. I collapse on our beloved couch and it hugs me. And I say, Chloe. People with kids are miserable. And look, maybe I have a low tolerance for children because I've lost a lot of great friends to kids. Because it really is like a disease in some ways, but it's worse than a disease because they want you to have it. So he says kids are a disease. Now, in the last breakdown session, we talked about Kim Kardashian and Kanye West and the decisions that they have made and how Kim Kardashian has changed the things that she has been wearing and dressing a little bit more modestly, both for her husband's sake, but more so for her children. And I talked about how children make you a better person. And so obviously they're not a disease. And I know this firsthand because I have two of them. Children make you a better person and they unlock some sort of potential in you that you will just not find doing anything else. And I don't mean to offend people who don't have kids yet or don't want kids or who are on the fence. I'm just laying it out like it is and like, This is my experience with life. Kids will 
push you to your limits and then beyond them. And you will find out that you are capable of so much more than you ever thought. Not just in terms of doing stuff, but in terms of emotion, in terms of what you feel down in your soul. It is something that you can't experience unless you have kids. And Berbiglia explains how he came to that conclusion in a really touching way. And I walk into our apartment and Jen is crying on the couch a lot, like pretzels level. <laughs> and she says, Una's never going to be in my belly again. That's how close Jen and Una were. This is the most profound level of love I had ever witnessed. He says even though he felt like he was the quote-unquote vice president of the family and that he was useless and that he couldn't do much, especially while, the, while their child Uno was a baby, he still picked up on that. And his journey doesn't end there. It doesn't end with just acknowledging how much his wife loves their child. He tells the story of when they were in the department store buying a new couch. Because I told you this comes full circle. Three of us sit on the couch in the department store. <laughs> Una's hiding behind each of us, and we go, where's Una, where's Una? She's clinging to my back as I spin. The more she clings, the more I'm committing. Like, where is Una? Where is she? <laughs> and she starts laughing so hard, like the hardest I've ever seen anyone laugh my whole life, and I'm in the jokes business. <laughs> She's laughing so hard that I start laughing in a new way from my perspective and Jen's perspective and Una's perspective all at once we're laughing as one and in that moment I feel full now he spends a significant part of this special talking about how hard parenting is and how frustrating it is and the frustrations of parenthood are the subject of a lot of jokes and a lot of memes go around on the internet about how hard parenting is. Like the one about how like, oh, congratulations, you're a parent now. You're never going to pee alone. Stuff like that. But it's rare to find a set of material that doesn't just explain the frustration and doesn't just explain it in contrast to the joy of parenthood, but explains how all those frustrations lead up to moments like that and how fulfilling it is to have children and to be with them. Earlier today, uh, my three-year-old got out her blocks. Like These are just plain wood blocks, cylinders, triangles, things like that. And she wanted to build a house and she wanted to play blocks. And I was like, okay, so it's like two o'clock in the afternoon, okay? And as we're playing blocks, I'm having flashbacks to when I was like 13, 14, and I was babysitting for the neighbors. I was babysitting the neighbor kids. And I would babysit in the afternoon, and I would sit there, and I would play these mundane games and basically build blocks and Legos and stuff with these kids. And I remember it being one of the hardest things I ever had to do. And I know that shows a lot of privilege, but also I, you know, used to clean paddocks to pay for writing lessons 
in like just freezing cold rain and, you know, shoveling manure and stuff like that. So I have some perspective. And when I was a kid, honestly, it was hard because it's a hard time of day. You're tired. You just want to take a nap. You're just bored to death and you're playing blocks and there's not even anything that you're going to get out of it. It's not like you're making a meal or, you know, building something that's going to last or painting a picture. You're playing with blocks that are going to get knocked down in 2.4 seconds. But as I'm sitting there this afternoon in front of the heater because it's freezing cold in my house, I'm sitting there playing with blocks with my toddler and I'm thinking, this is different. This is not terrible. Like, I want to sit and play blocks and build stuff with my daughter. And it is like the most boring activity in the world, except that I'm doing it with her and seeing her expressions and how her brain works. And it just reinforced to me, yeah, I made the right the right decision. When I was like a preteen, uh, because of maybe because of my babysitting experiences, I was not sure I wanted to have kids because of all the things that you will hear in the microbiglia special and all of my experiences babysitting, which, you know, some of them were good experiences. Like the kids themselves were fine. I just didn't like babysitting. It just reinforced to me that we made the right decision to have kids. And there is something that makes you feel full in a way that nothing else in my life has. Not my career, not anything I've written, not any other relationship, even my relationship with my husband, who I love dearly. It's different and it's powerful and it's special. And if you're on the fence about having kids, man, go for it. You will not, it's going to be the hardest thing you ever do, but it will be the best thing you ever do with your life is to have kids. I guarantee it. And that is all I have for you today. I hope to have a new interview for you next Friday. I hope you are having a wonderful holiday season. And don't hesitate to reach out at 323-999-1802 with your thoughts about this episode or episode 38 or any of the past episodes that you have thoughts on. You can flip out on the flip phone. Just flip out, try to flip my position. Tell me about your own 180 story slash flip flop. I want to hear about all of it. It is all interesting to me. So don't be shy. 323-999-1802. Follow, subscribe, all that jazz. And with that, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got in the middle of Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Crack. Who I am, what I need, who I've got to be. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.